0: It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. During the coronavirus pandemic, many of us are home with kids, some of whom may be teenagers. Teens experience big emotional highs and lows even without the stress of a national crisis. So what's this emotional roller coaster all about? Psychologist Lisa DeMoore says teens know their
1: feelings of dysregulation are different and new. It didn't used to be that they would be in a puddle on the kitchen floor over not finding the genes they were looking for. They both are completely swamped by these emotions and also have, you know, technically we call it like an observing ego that can be like, what the hell is going on here?
0: Today, our guest speakers unpack teen emotions. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from onstage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion is from the Aspen Ideas Festival. When a child hits adolescence, often their emotions run wild. Puberty and brain development are just part of why they feel a range of extreme emotions. How can parents, coaches, teachers, and other adults help teens communicate and navigate the intensity of their feelings? Lisa DeMoor is joined by Michael Reichart and Leah Somerville. DeMora writes an adolescence column for the New York Times. She's also the author of Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood. Reichert is a psychologist and founding director of the Center for the Study of Boys and Girls' Lives. Somerville is a psychology professor at Harvard. Their conversation is led by Lori Gottlieb, a psychotherapist and the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Here's Gottlieb.
2: Welcome, everybody. We're going to talk about teenagers, and I'm I'm sure you're all um, here for one reason or another. Either you have a teenager in your home, or you uh, work with teenagers, or you care for teenagers, or you're an educator. Um, So we're going to tackle it from all those different angles. So I want to start by asking, um, how many of you have a teen in your life? Okay, great. So I'm going to ask Leah then to... um, Talk to us a little bit about um, emotional development during adolescence. Um, Your research has revealed a few themes about adolescent emotions, and I think that would be interesting for us to start to unpack on this panel.
3: Can you share some of those with us? Yes, happy to. Um, Thank you. So... um... Psychology and neuroscience has taught us a lot about adolescence, and this is a very active, dynamic uh, topic for research. So it's something that we're still very much building scientific foundations uh, for and and understanding how developments during this time of life underpin changes in a variety of different uh, behaviors and competencies, including in the emotional domain. Um, So I have sort of three take-home messages about emotional development as the scientists see it, um, which uh, we can talk about how that does or doesn't um, match up with our sort of lay understanding of emotional development. Um, One theme is related to the relative amount of positive and negative emotion that adolescents experience compared to adults and children. Um, There are studies that have been tracking uh, for weeks at a time having people of all different ages um, sort of note to their emotional uh, states at various points in a given day, um, asking them, for example, how much positive emotion and negative emotion they're experiencing. Um, What this research tends to show is actually um, I find really interesting So from the transition from childhood into adolescence, there tends to be a reduction in daily positive emotion, which is perhaps not a big surprise to those of us who know adolescents well. Um, One thing that might be surprising is that the amount of negative emotion that adolescents experience is actually not... Um, that different from what adults experience. So there are also some commonalities. Um, one of the big uh, changes, though, is that adolescents' positive and negative emotional experience tend to have higher highs, lower lows, and bigger jumps in a given day. So this sort of roller coaster metaphor might uh, have some truths to it. Um, the second theme that um, is, the research is demonstrating to us is that adolescents tend to experience more complex emotions than children, that is experiencing mixtures of positive and negative emotions at the, even at the same time. This is also something that adults experience, but the complexity that's new to adolescents is something that they sometimes struggle to make sense of, and so this can create uh, sort of uh, confusion or lack of full understanding or insight into what one is actually feeling, um, which is something that we believe experience brings more uh, clarity with age as people develop into adults. Um, And the third kind of take-home point that might be worth mentioning today is that um, research is also interested not only in understanding the sort of bottom-up emotional experiences that are generated in daily life, but also if you wanted to modify that experience, um, how could you exert control or regulate the emotions that are being felt? Um, This is a competency that's very important for day-to-day functioning and daily life. Um, And it's something that adolescents are still fine-tuning. So they are able to regulate emotion, (laughs) um, but not necessarily with quite the tuning and skill that adults uh, exhibit. So this is something we consider to be an actively developing competency, both choosing the right strategy to use in a given situation and then using it in a way that's maximally effective toward your emotional goals. So maybe I'll pause there, um, but those are sort of 3 three themes that have been emerging recently in the field of adolescent developmental psychology.
2: So you're talking about adolescents more generally, and Lisa, you study girls, and Michael, you study boys. And I'm wondering, um, given what Leah said, um, what do you see clinically with girls? I'll start with you, Lisa, with girls, and then we'll go to Michael and what you see clinically with boys that fits in with what Leah's
1: talking about. So thinking clinically... One of the things that came to mind when you were talking was something that a supervisor said to me early in my training that it initially I was hesitant to believe. And she said, you need to work with the assumption that all teenagers secretly worry that they're crazy. Right? And I thought, really? And then I started practicing, right? And I saw what you're describing in technical terms, like these big highs, low lows, and also not sure what to make of it, and it's all sort of you know in an amalgam. And... You also mentioned the departure, that this is a shift from when they were children, Mm -hmm. right? So part of what we're dealing with clinically are bright young teenagers who remember when they didn't feel this dysregulated, right? And remember that it didn't used to be that they would be in a puddle on the kitchen floor over not finding the genes they were looking for. And and I think... (laughs) And I I think it's this really interesting thing clinically that they both are completely swamped by these emotions and also have, you know, technically we call it like an observing ego. that can be like, what the hell is going on here? And so one of the things I think about a lot is how do we as adults both support and normalize that experience because they feel so strange in the midst of it? um, And then also... Um, provide containment for it. You know, another thing I think about a lot in my training was a wonderful supervisor who said, you know, if, there's, if a child is shut down or a teenager shut down, your job is to help with expression. And if they are overflowing with emotion, your job is to help with containment, right? And one of the challenges that we have clinically and then also in the home, and I'm also the mother of a teenager, right, is that when your child is having a big emotional eruption and especially when that child's now a teenager it's a frightening experience and our job i think a lot about containment and i think a lot both as a clinician and as a parent and as you know someone who guides parents about how much kids read our faces and how much young people look to us for reassurance that everything's okay and how much we get it right with toddlers who fall and scrape their knee. You know how your toddler falls and scrapes their knee and the first thing they do is they look at their knee and then they look at your face, right? And whatever's going on with your face dictates what happens next. And we get it right in those moments where you're like, you're fine, you're fine, even if we're like, I don't know if you're okay, but you know, like, you're fine. And I think that our job as adults, clinically, parents, teachers, everyone, is to hold on to that into caring for teenagers so that when they're having a big, powerful experience... We at least with our face contain and and transmit confidence that it's probably okay. You know, without dismissing it.
2: Michael, do you think that you know that, that idea of you know being in a puddle on the kitchen floor because you can't find the right genes, what's the equivalent in boys? What do you what do you see going on with boys when they when they transition from childhood into adolescence?
4: Yeah, so so hello everybody. I would say that this topic, emotional development, is a particularly important case in thinking about male development. I think that emotional development is ground zero for the impact of cultural norms on how a boy comes to manhood, how he comes to think of himself. A study that I'm particularly fond of was conducted by an organization in D.C. called the Manbox Study. And it it, it, uh, uh, surveyed and then did follow-up focus group interviews with about 1,500 18 to 30-year-olds in three different countries, the U.S., the U.K., and Mexico. The U.S. was the country of those three that had, in some ways, the most extreme outcomes. And basically what they were able to do was to correlate the degree to which young men subscribe to uh, cultural norms about masculinity with other kinds of outcomes, and lo and behold, the boys, the young men who most subscribed to traditional norms about masculinity, uh, were the most depressed, the most anxious, and had the most suicidal thoughts. Carol Gilligan had this idea that voice is a function of breath and resonance, and I think what's missing for boys is not the young men, is not the voice, not the breath. It's the resonance. I think beginning at age two, we we project onto young men, boys, that that they should suck it up, that they should uh, be stoic, that they should keep their pain, their struggle, their meltdowns to themselves and and buck up, be strong. My two-and-a-half-year-old grandson, this pains me to say this, but I see him learning these feeling rules and trying hard to lean into them. He hurts himself, he gets up and says, I'm okay. You know, already trying to play to what he believes we all want. I, I teach an emotional literacy course for high school boys. I've been doing it for 25 years. The really, really good news here is I've seen a market shift. These young men, 16, 17, 18 years old, they know that they want to learn emotional literacy skills. They, they call this program the most, the most uh, popular program in the school. It's a voluntary program. It's not because of the pizza, although that's a, that's a factor. Um, it really is because they want this opportunity to practice these skills.
2: Can you talk about what goes on in, the, in teaching emotional literacy to boys? I
4: can. It's not hard. It's really, a, it's really if we build it, they will come is what I've come to think. It's not me. I'm not a magician. I simply uh, uh, choose topics that are relevant to their lives, their relationships with their parents, their relationships with each other, their relationships with girls, sex, pornography, um, substance use, topics like that. I'll say a few things about those topics, and then I'll invite them to be real with each other in a dyad, sharing. And then the, the real high-water mark of this, these meetings, which last about an hour and a half, are demonstrations where I will ask one boy, one young man, to come up and, and, and talk in front of all 40 or 50 of them about that topic. What happens what happens in that room is profound and profoundly reassuring to me that that given resonance, boys have voice, they have they have they have plenty to say, and they they through the practice of listening and talking, learning to code feelings with language and communicate them, they they demonstrate all of the skills of emotional literacy we would want folks to have.
2: Do you think, I'm asking all of you, do you think that these differences between adolescent boys and adolescent girls, clearly some of it's cultural, is any of it biological, do you think? And maybe, Leah, maybe you can speak to that. Um,
3: When it comes to the sort of underlying developmental processes that is underpinning this time of life, we can think about a few different classes of change. One is the pubertal transition, which comes with a, a cascade of hormonal changes, um, which have some degree of overlap, but are also really distinct for males and females. Um, When it comes to thinking about other dimensions, like brain development, it's much more common than distinct. Uh, Male brain and female brains have subtle differences in the way in which they develop, but whether those actually are meaningful in terms of day-to-day life and functioning is something that scientists um, don't think has a very strong, giant effect. Um, So I would um, think cultural and socialization-related forces and the kinds of stressors and pressures that might be, differentiate male and female adolescents would also play a really big role.
2: Well, let me ask you something. So I have a 13-year-old boy, so I'm asking not for a friend. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, what I've noticed is that is that boys sort of come online a little bit later than girls. So when we talk about this, you know, the development and what's happening with their brain development and how much... Um, you know, frontal lobe <laughs> development they're having. Um, can you talk a little bit about those differences? Because I, I do think that, you know, there's something going on where boys are not coming online as quickly as girls are.
3: Sure, and there's a sort of biologically uh, rooted reason for that. Um, males tend to enter puberty about a year to a year and a half later than girls on average. Um, those average ages nowadays are some like, something like 10 and a half to 11 year old, years old for girls and 12. Uh, to 12 and a half years old for boys. So these numbers are creeping downwards uh, generationally. Um, and this does exert influence over the trajectories of brain development, which parallel these uh, changes in the hormonal cascades. So uh, do male brains develop a little bit more slowly than female brains? Yes, but they catch up. <laughs> and how <When>? many... <laughs> Um, how meaningful that is for day-to-day functioning is something I would uh, emphasize to be very, on the very small order of effect, not a gigantic
1: effect. Um, so there might be other forces at play as well.
4: I'd love to hear what you, what you say about this, Lisa, and then I'd like to make a point yeah.
1: about it. Um, so one finding we have, and I'm with Leah, like, I'm very cautious when we talk about gender differences, because we're always talking about overlapping bell curves, right, where boys and girls, men and women, are more alike than different always. That said, um, there is a research finding that I often come back to that, when distressed, girls are more likely to discuss and boys are more likely to distract. And, and this is plus-minus for both parties. Like, there's no clear winner in this. But I think one thing that does happen is that girls discuss and that they then practice talking about feelings, right, with one another. And there's time spent sort of cultivating a language and a communication style as a way of managing the feelings. Now, the downside for girls is that sometimes it tips over into what we call rumination, right, where they just sort of you know, spin their wheels over something emotionally, whereas a boy might come home, have a terrible day, go out, shoot hoops, until the feeling dies down. Um, the downside for boys, I'll let you speak to this, right, is they're not talking about their feelings so much, um, as maybe girls are.
4: It's actually astonishing to me, heartbreaking and astonishing, what boys haven't talked about emotionally impactful. I had a boy come into the group, a peer counseling group, the emotional literacy group at the school, and uh, it was his turn to uh, have an opportunity to be the, uh, in the hot seat. And he eagerly came up, sat down, and what he wanted to talk about was the fact that he had lost his mother a couple years ago. None of his friends knew that he would go in a folding chair after school and sit by her grave. That's, that's not an exception. The kinds of things, the, the emotionally powerful things that boys don't find an opportunity to talk about and consequently don't develop any kind of fluency with uh, 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 you know, downloading I- intense emotions, um, how much they hold to themselves, how much they try to rise above it, You know, in the echo chamber of our own minds, it's impossible to regulate emotional tensions. Um, Certainly, your 13 year old son is learning to do that. My two and a half year old grandson is learning to do it. And uh, all of these boys in this high school program that I, I, I work with are learning to do it. And, you know, it's not surprising, therefore, that we have so many boys that act out their distresses, their tensions rather than find some way to communicate about them, download them, work them through?
2: I think it's so interesting because um, so I see adults in my practice, and I sort of see the adult version of what you're all describing. And so when, when men come into my practice, they'll say, I've never told anybody this before. And women will come in and say, I've never told anybody this before except for my mother, my sister, my best friend. You know? um, so what you're saying, Lisa, is that they do have people, they do have practice doing that even if they aren't always skilled at talking to other people.
1: There's an interesting dynamic that I, I've practiced long enough to see this a few times happen where um, I'm taking care of an adolescent girl who's at the end of high school. And she has been in a very intense romance um, with a boy for a couple years, years. And these are like marriages, right? I mean, they're really intense, really intense relationships. And what becomes clear, they are at the juncture of having to decide what to do with the relationship on the way to college, right? And there's no good. There's no good choice here. And she is in pain about it, but, you know, ending the relationship or deciding to move on and discussing it with her friends. And she has all these, like, areas to go to for support, and what becomes clear as she's describing it to me is that for the boy, he was the first powerful emotional intimacy and the first relationship where he really was emotionally close. So as this relationship is dissolving, he has her. And he does not have, actually, the, you know, these sort of supports all around. And so as they're trying to kind of uncouple, he keeps going back to her because he's got no one else that he's cultivated a relationship like that with before. And it is just so interesting to try to watch this happen where she's in pain but has lots of options and he's in pain and has one option. And it's so complicated. And it it does, I just think like, gosh, these guys, right? Like I so want them to come into these situations with a much more cultivated, stable of supportive emotional relationships. And thrilled for them that they find it sometimes in these romances, but then also so wishing that the rest of their Relational life weren't as impoverished as it ends up seeming like it is.
2: Right. So, so so many men come to, as adults, come to my practice, and they really don't have a lot of friends. They have friends, but they have friends they can't talk to in the way they talk to their spouses. So, Michael, I'm wondering, what as, if, as a parent, as an educator, um, as somebody who works with boys, um, what specifically can we do if they don't have the kind of group that you're talking about? What can we do kind of in the day-to-day, just the, the ordinary things, to kind of help them, um, you know, have more than one option for their feelings?
4: You lots to say about this subject. Um, I, I want to go back to what Leah was saying about the uh, brain development pathways for males and females. Um, you know, it may be true that they are mostly similar, pathways, but that's not what we believe. The impact of stereotypes on how we think about boys. Um, I have a a friend who was pregnant carrying twins, and she knew that one was a boy and one was a girl. And she said, I know which one's the boy. I said, how do you know? She said, he's the one who kicks me. Mm -hmm. Um, We project onto our children what we think their sex means from the moment we know that we're, we're, we're going to give birth, and for boys, what that means is we communicate in all kinds of ways that we're uncomfortable if they if they show fear or shame or sadness. Um, you know, being strong, being capable, knowing what to do—these are the things we're comfortable with in our males, and. You know, in that man box study I was referencing earlier, one of the questions that was asked of the boys was, you know, do you receive messages to man up? And 79% said yes. What was the source of those messages? Another question asked. 69% of the males said, my parents. So to your question about what can we do, I think the first thing we need to do is to recognize how we're carrying in our hearts Consciously or unconsciously ideas about how our son should be, particularly in this realm of emotional communication and and we communicate it verbally or you know in that kind of emotional attunement that kids feel our tension or our disapproval, and in doing that, we actually channel our boys away from the kind of emotionally articulate expressiveness that, uh, that they need to to really develop. You know, skill.
3: And just to follow up on that point, um, there's certainly research in psychology suggesting that stereotypes and expectations can turn into somewhat of a self fulfilling prophecy for the way individuals ultimately act and accept their own emotions. Um, This is also true for adolescents in general. There are stereotypes about adolescents as being perhaps faulty decision makers or um, you know, not capable of um, of doing certain things that they are quite capable of, and there's research suggesting that 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 stereotypes about adolescence as a phase of life can also exert its own self fulfilling prophecy um, on the adolescents themselves. So I think that these messages of normalizing this phase of the lifespan, remembering that it has existed in human development uh, for as long as we ex- uh, believe and as long as we expect it. Uh, across human history, um, and perhaps for really important and good purposes, um, I think is another uh, important stereotype to combat um, that adolescence is somehow some sort of negative or pathologized time of the lifespan.
2: Yeah, I think that's such a great point um, because I think that there are so many teenagers who they're not having a crisis or they're not having some of these, whatever the stereotypes are of the teenager who's, you know, completely off the rails. Um, Or even the kid who's like, I don't like to go to parties or, you know, I'm not going to go rebel and I'm not going to do all these crazy things. That doesn't appeal to me. And they think something's wrong with them, that they're, you know, something is seriously wrong with them, that they're not like a normal teenager, so there's that on the one hand. And then on the other hand, um, we have this, you know, a lot of people are talking about suicide in teens. We're talking about kids who really are struggling and struggling in a, in a profound way. I'm wondering, um, you know, what you think is going on that is, uh, you know, creating the situation. Is there real, are there really more teens, first of all, who are attempting suicide and actually committing suicide? And also, um, what do you think is behind this discussion that we're all having now?
4: So I just saw this number this morning, 2017, 6,200 suicide, completed suicides. 5,000 were male, 1,200 were female.
1: That's, but that, those are the data we've had for a long time. But it's um, They've been going up, though. They've been going up. So yet, to answer your question, yes, there is a rise. Um, and then with regard to the data, and this is important, it's a longstanding finding that um, men and boys girls and women attempt more often and boys and men complete suicide more often. So those data, the three to one of men actually completing at a much higher rate and it comes down to bluntly lethality of method, right? That boys and men use much more lethal methods um, and so that are much more likely to complete suicide. But this is really, these data are very scary, coming in fast and I think the true answer is we actually just, we don't know. I mean like when you look at people who are really disciplined about looking at the data, we don't, Actually, no. Um, there are causal claims out there that I think we need to be really cautious about. And people people like it's social media, it's you know the iPhone. Eh, we don't ha- we don't have those data. The data we do have, we have declining sleep duration. Kids sleep less. Grown ups sleep less. Um, we know that that can be connected to having technology in your bedroom, right? So we do have that causal finding. Um, I'm going to connect dots, you know, it's, you have to connect a lot of dots, but it's, you know, you still don't know that you've got the answer. So if we have declining sleep durations that maybe be connected to technology, as soon as humans start sleeping less, like we all know this, right, anyone who's already fragile is going to become a whole lot more fragile, right? So then we think maybe that accelerates a process that was already in place. Um, another thing I worry about, I'm really eager to hear what you think, I worry a little bit about how frightened we all feel. And if we put that against what I said earlier, like teenagers already feel like there's something wrong with them, and then a teenager says, as they do sometimes, like, oh, my God, I feel like I could kill myself, right? I mean, they say that. And sometimes that's just a kid who just felt really crummy that day and then said it and has no suicidal ideation, intent, none of that, and then lands in the ER because of that. And I've seen a few of these. I'm sure you too have, too, where the kid's like, oh, my gosh, maybe I really am broken, right? So I, I worry about this as a clinician. And I think the yeah. other
2: problem is that if they say something like that and a parent overreacts, then they think, I'm not going to share any of my feelings. Now I'm done. Because my parent's going to completely overreact to yeah. anything I say.
1: So having thrown that out, I'm going to say one more thing, because I just I don't want people to think, well, well, then what do we do, right? Um, I will tell you what I do, um, because teenagers do. They say that. They say, like, oh, I don't even want to be here anymore, right? And then we're all on such high alert, as we should be. So I will say, is that how upset you feel right now? Or do you really think about hurting yourself? And and that's a good place to start because usually they'll say, oh, no, no, I'm not thinking about hurting myself. I'm just really upset, right? And then you can have that conversation. That doesn't mean you've now cleared them of all suicide risk for the rest of time. Um, But it is a way to engage it, not make them sorry that they said something, and yet not run a kid down to an ER, and harm the relationship over a risk that was never present.
0: It's Aspen Ideas To Go. Thanks for listening. Author Walter Isaacson is fascinated by innovators, the kinds of geniuses whose ideas have transformed industry, science, and society. He's written about Albert Einstein, Steve Jobs, and Benjamin Franklin. His latest book focuses on Leonardo da Vinci. His boundless curiosity, Isaacson says, renders him perhaps the greatest of creative geniuses. In Aspen Ideas To Go, Isaacson explains how we can apply the lessons da Vinci left behind to our own lives. Find The Imagination of Leonardo da Vinci on your favorite podcast player. Let's get back to our featured conversation. Here's Lori Gottlieb. I want to talk about how we can talk to our kids about
2: relationships. A lot of people are talking about how kids, um, and it might be different with boys and girls, there might be some brain development stuff in here, but um, I'm curious to know, I think a lot of parents don't know how to talk to their kids about sex. They don't know how to talk to them about relationships. Um, they watch their kids kind of, you know, having relationships via text. And I'm wondering um, what you, what takeaways you can give today for anybody out here who works with kids.
4: Yeah, you know, this, this comes up a lot when we're talking about boys in a Me Too time. You know, how do we talk to our sons about respecting women, about negotiating consent and things like that, And and my starting point is actually more basic than that. I think before we try to talk to our sons, we need to learn to listen to our sons, and we need to establish the kinds of holding environments for them in which they want to talk to us, not avoid us because they're afraid of our reactions or our overreactions or our judgments. Boys are so vulnerable to being judged because they're already balancing uh, uh, right on the tipping point of feeling shame, most of us guys know we don 't measure up to the masculine ideal it 's a secret we 're trying to keep from people and and uh, to be able you know to actually disclose doubts, questions, fears um, you know compulsions uh mistakes we 've made freely, we need to do that because we need to download that stuff in order to clean the slate, ease ourselves, but we have to do it with people that we actually can trust, can handle it. And so the first order of business for a parent is to figure out how to listen, deep listen I call it, in a way that doesn't interrupt the boy's ability to figure out for himself as he airs his dirty laundry, figure out for himself what it means.
2: I just want to say as a a mom that um, I noticed that sometimes my my son has a they have a boy book club and sometimes we moms will like overhear their conversations I say overhear in quotes Um, (laughs) and um, you know the instinct is to sometimes I think as women too to say oh that was offensive or you know what somebody said and they can't really talk about how they really think about things or think critically about it or reflect on it if what you're telling them is, oh, don't think that, don't feel that. Um, so That's I right. think what you're saying about listening is so important.
4: And it's not easy to do because we, we are, you know, the, the, the recent studies demonstrate, you know, a recent study of expecting parents found that I think for the first time in this particular survey, uh, expecting parents prefer to have a girl than a boy because they they view boys' lives as too uncertain, too, too, too risky. We react to boys with worry or disapproval or domination and control. We don't trust them to reveal themselves and discover who they are and the truth of what they want in their lives. By working it out, we react. So the first order of business is to listen.
2: Lisa, what would be your takeaway on that?
1: Um, with regard to the social media question and kids communicating, um, there's only one part of technology that I'm really there's two things I'm actually really on the ceiling about. Um, most of it I'm actually not that much. I mean, kids uh, often use social media in ways that enhance the friendships they've already got. It connects kids who maybe in a very in a minority in their community to kids around you know who have, share um, like feelings and thoughts and you know it, there's a lot of positive power to it. Um, one thing I worry about tremendously is the sleep factor. I, mean, I just you know I, I, it's it's a huge force. Um, I am probably the least prescriptive psychologist I know, but I feel like if you can keep technology out of a kid's bedroom, you know that is a fight worth having. Um, the other thing I'm on the ceiling about actually is pornography and and I will say I am really like the most reassuring psychologist, like most things related to adolescents, I'm like, no, it's not that big a deal. They're great. everything's fine. It's totally cool. You know, don't worry about it. This one. Though, I, I really am concerned. Um, all kids, we all were curious about sex. We all, you know, passed around, you know, found somebody's brother had a Playboy. You know, I mean, like, we all were sort of curious and looking. So, kids, of course, are curious, and kids, of course, are looking. And what is available now, right, is so graphic, so, frankly, violent, strange, overwhelming and that that's really become something that's very much a part of growing up is to be exposed to that. Um and we have the data that show it, right? And what worries me and this gets to what you're saying about, you know, keeping the lines of communication open. Okay, teenagers are not going to bring this up with us and we're not really usually wanting to bring it up with them, you know, so it sort of just goes to the side. And and I think there are very powerful and important conversations we need to be having about the fact that not has your kid seen techno- pornography but like when your kid sees pornography, right, and, and getting out in front of that and talking with them about that not being a norm and not being a healthy representation and really having those conversations and making it clear that you can keep having those conversations. And I, you know, I will say when I handed over a cell phone to my own daughter when she turned 13, I said my number one concern is that this will be the vehicle by which you eventually see this, whether you see it or somebody on the bus goes, look at this, right, because that happens a lot. And I said, when that happens, let's talk about what you saw. And, and I think that that, for me, the hazards of technology, those are the two that most keep me worried about teenagers.
2: Yeah, and I think both, of course, relate to relationships. Yeah. Um, Leah, your um, takeaway, and then we're going to open it up to your questions.
3: Sure. I mean, I think just to follow up on the point about sleep, um, adolescents are... Uh, Well, we are a sleep-deprived culture in general, um, but adolescents are actually especially prone to the negative effects of many factors related to sleep. Um, the hormones of puberty actually sensitize the brain sleep clock during adolescence in a way that, um, for example, you, the blue light exposure on screens uh, exerts a stronger influence, uh, creating ha- stronger insomnia in the adolescent brain than the adult brain. Um, and this is all in spite of the fact that adolescents actually need substantially more sleep than adults do. Um, they are growing and <laughs> take lots of energy to do that. Um, and so it kind of creates a double whammy where uh, these sort of social socialized factors like the access to blue light and screens, um, exacerbates what is already a tenuous system when it comes to sleep and the need for sleep. Um, So I think that that's a very important uh, biological factor to keep in mind. Um, I guess one other point that uh, might be relevant to screens um, that I think about uh, relates to adolescent sensitivity to social feedback. Um, This is in the form of rejection um, or uh, even just sort of the absence of a like being interpreted as a re- cue of rejection, um, even though in to adults perhaps it would just uh, be something we wouldn't notice at all. Um, we've have there's research suggesting that adolescents are uh, their self views and self worth is especially prone to the outside influence of other people. Um, and so, although I don't um, have any uh, sort of uh, general concern about uh, the digital world, uh, a spe- more specific concern is um, the availability of feedback uh, that is so. Co- fast acting uh, on social media platforms. And I think um, adolescents, I think, have more vulnerability to those cues than adults do, uh, which is another kind of developmental factor that we can keep in mind when thinking about these new uh, ways technology interacts with daily life. Right.
2: And all of these things that you guys are talking about, like what's great is that, I think what you're saying is, we can talk to our teens about these things. So it's not, I think a lot of times when people talk about adolescence, it's sort of like doom and gloom, and here are all these dangers. But... I think what we're talking about today is how do we talk to them about it? How do we help them to make sense of this world and, and have a place to go with it? You want and to say I, one more and thing and just, then we're going to I
4: would open just it. play with the wording. How do, we, how do we create conditions so that our children will talk to us?
2: Yes. Yes, much better. Um, so we are going to open it up to questions.
0: Okay, this is actually for a friend. Uh, she has a,
4: <laughs> a teenage boy who is just become rageful and um throwing things violent
1: uh, aggressive and has run away from home um so how do you how do you talk to them and where they open up and, and communicate and don't just shut down and block you out
4: yeah yeah in my clinical practice i see i've had a clinical practice for about 30 years and 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 typically the the reason that a parent will bring a teenage boy or a boy to see me has to do with misbehavior, misconduct of one kind or another. And, and bouts of rage, destructiveness, uh, disrespect, um, physical violence, threats, that kind of thing, that's, that's not unusual in my practice. And what I would say is it's really, really important that the boy not get away with that because that's damaging him and his self-concept as much as it's damaging the relationships. It's confusing him about um, uh, who he is and what's expected of him in terms of civility and love and and getting along with people. Um, So what's going on with him uh, is that he is overwhelmed. His self-regulatory systems are overwhelmed, and there's perhaps some degree of cultural permission to act it out. Um, Insufficient limits have somehow been established in the family. Um, He may be being uh, uh, empowered by a peer group, by substances, by violent movies or video games he's watching. This is all in the way of a sort of an assessment that has to be conducted on what's going on. Um, You know, is the boy simply emotionally overwhelmed? Things are going on. There's threat. There's stress in his life, and he can't contain it. It's leaking out, and because there's been no, no normal day-to-day opportunity to download, it builds to an explosive level and comes out this way. Um, in, in, in my book, I talk about a model for setting limits uh, that parents can implement that I call listen, limit, listen. And the point isn't to dominate the boy, to control him. That's a short game and we're trying to play a long game with our sons. We're trying to teach them skills of self-regulation. In this case, it might need a short game first, (laughs) you know, for the sake of the boy and his parents and his family. There's often other siblings in the family, and getting to see parents' executive control being thwarted by a teenage boy is really destructive all the way around for the family system. So it's important for the parents to reestablish executive control, over this boy, it's important for him and his sense of safety that they do that. And so coaching the parent is, is, is step one. There's an assessment that needs to happen and some understanding about what has overwhelmed this boy's inherent sense of loving his mother, respecting limits, being, want, wanting to be a civil member of a family. What I say to a lot of these boys that come into my practice is it's not hard to defeat your parents. A family is a voluntary enterprise. You have to submit to parental authority. You can defeat it. You can hide. You can disagree. You can sneak. You can out-and-out oppose. It's not hard to defeat it, but you might actually want to live in a family, and you might want to get along with your parents for all kinds of reasons, and if you're having trouble doing that, let's address what's going on that's making it hard for you to do that.
1: I I think there's a couple things clinically to... Continue. Um, one is, you're, you're, this is inherent in your question. Just to be clear, that this is not normal adolescence, right? You know, and I think sometimes people will be like, "Oh my God, teenagers!" Like what you're describing? No, like that is not normal adolescence, and it's important for us to recognize it as that. The other thing that I have found clinically is, whatever it is, underneath, somehow it always makes sense, right? However problematic it is, like there's a reason why this guy's doing this, and that reason needs to be ferreted out. And the other thing I think that's really important if we're going to talk about teenagers and emotion and then certainly about suicide, probably a couple notches down from what you describe is irritability in adolescence. And one thing that is not well known, and I think sort of psychologists, like we haven't done a good public service announcement on this, depression in teenagers often takes the form of very chronic irritability. Um, it's like living with a porcupine. And that we often think of depression as being low mood, weepy, sad, you know, kind of lethargic. In adolescence, in particular, it can take the form of a chronic irritability. And by chronic, I mean not just cranky with your parents, cranky with your teachers, cranky with your coaches, cranky with, like, really unable to bear anyone else's presence. And, and, and
4: I think of that as a good thing, by the way.
1: Well, except for when it's a.
4: Not a normal thing. Not a normal a thing. thing.
1: A good thing in terms of.
4: They're not hiding it.
1: They're not hiding it, but it gets mistaken. That's, right. Right? that's where things go wrong. It's like, oh, my God, that kid's such a pain in the butt, right? And so annoying and so frustrating. And I remember being, I used to run an inpatient unit for 12-year-old boys. It was like eight hours a day there. And we had this kid, and I was like, God, this kid is just so unbearable. And one of the psychiatrists finally was like, that's a depressed kid. And when he was treated for depression, totally different kid came to the fore. So just in the name of sort of a public service announcement around adolescence and mood, if you have a kid who is a total porcupine everywhere and always, get them evaluated for depression, which is not usually the first thing you're going to think of.
4: Yeah,
2: that, that's really important. That A lot of the, the mood disorders that we see as adults present very differently in kids. And we mistake them in the other direction, too, that sometimes we'll see something in a kid and we'll go, oh, that's, that's depression, and maybe they're just having a bad day. So it's good to ferret those out. Um, more questions?
1: Okay, so I'm still technically a teenager, um, fairly. (laughs) Uh, And I thought about this one when you guys were talking about giving the sex talk, sorry. So um, I spent a lot of time back in high school kind of discovering my identity in the LGBT community, which was something that my parents weren't terribly familiar with. Um, So my question was, how, as a parent, would you suggest kind of going about discussing with your kids something you don't really know about and don't have experience with, but you need to talk about anyway? It's funny. When you were this morning at your panel, I'm talking about having stuff in common with patients or not, right? I remember early in my training, I, you know, I was taking care of parents long before I was a parent, and, and there was this worry, right, that a patient would say, well, do you have kids? And then you'd be like, no, you know, and then they'd walk out of the door. And, and so one of the things we were help to say is to say, you know, I don't have children, but my experience of having children would be different than your experience of having children, so tell me about your experience of having children, right? And it really was a a good way to do that. So I guess what I would say is, you know, on any of these things for a parent, if your child decides they want to, you know, be a firefighter and you know nothing about firefighters, or, you know, or if they've got a sexual orientation that's unfamiliar, I think, again, even if the parent were familiar of it, they'd still be familiar from their perspective, right? So I would say whatever it is that your child... Pursues that you may have very little fluency with, like just own that, you know. Or even if you have, you think you have fluency, don't assume you do, right? Say I, this is my experience of this, but that's not yours. Walk me through yours.
4: Yeah, this is a. It's, a, it's an, This is a, one of those. This is one of those topics that is radically changing the way we think about gender. Um, a 2015 California health study found that 25 uh, percent. Of the teenagers that responded to the health study, identified as gender nonconforming. Um, you know, I, I talked about the man box study and the way that parents and, and educators, coaches, you know, all of the uh, managers of boyhood try to fit boys into the man box, and boys are 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 simply, you know, uh, uh, suffering losses. At, at being fitted into the bandbox, box. And I think we're, we're at a time in history um, where boys are recognizing that that's a, a death sentence, that that's a sentence to losing a portion of who they are, their humanity, their individuality, their relational competence and whatnot, that they're not willing to take. And so I think more and more boys are rejecting being fitted in that man box, but it comes at a price. It comes at the price of being identified, perhaps being bullied, uh, being excluded in all kinds of ways. So what I think we have to help parents understand is that, um, uh, A, that they, they, they carry this intergenerational uh, impulse to fit boys into a box and to, to gain control over it, number one. And number two, to recognize that no boy, no child, Uh, uh, really fits any particular gender stereotype. And our job as parents is to get behind the child's imagination for who he or she thinks of themselves as and follow that lead. That's our job, is to follow the lead of the child.
2: Your question also reminds me, I got a Dear Therapist question from a parent um, who asked, said, you know, my daughter um, came out as gay, and I don't know if, what do I do about sleepovers, you know, because... I don't know, like, if she were straight, I wouldn't let her have boys sleep over in her room. But now I don't know, should I have girls sleep over in her room? And I think that, um, you know, parents have a lot of questions just because they don't know. And kids sometimes interpret that as, you don't accept me or you're going to treat me differently. I think this parent wanted to actually treat her kid, you know, as if, it, if the kid had been straight, you know, here are the rules. So what are the rules now? And, um, you know, I think a lot of parents are very um, interested in learning more. I think this generation of parents is much more interested in learning more about who their kids are, even if they didn't have that same experience. So going back to what Lisa said about you don't have to have had the same experience to be able to learn about it. Other questions? Um, I'm just going to ask a question about motivation. I have a 14-year-old boy, and I feel like I see a lot of um, teenage boys or maybe girls, They, I feel like they're kind of lost. They're not really motivated um, about what's happening in the world. And I, I see them more for boys because I have two boys. And I feel like they just they're not sure they care about video gaming but only to a certain extent and they just are not really interested in trying new things and my question is how do you get them to be motivated to um, be you know trying different things and you know open to different ideas and I'm going I'm to say one thing about it before I turn to the people who actually know about this um, and that's that I think there is so much pressure on kids around college right now, on adolescents around college. And I think that boys are at a disadvantage with that because boys, and again, we're talking sort of broad stereotypes here. Girls are much better at school, meaning the sitting down, the being quiet, the following directions, less needing to move around all the time. Um, And boys tend to have a lot more energy and um, have a harder time with sort of the structural parts of school. And then when you add on top of that what they need to do to get into college, um, it doesn't tend to be what they're motivated to do, right? Um, And I think a lot of boys get overwhelmed by the expectations that are around them, and it translates into a generalized it's not really a lack of motivation. It's a I'm overwhelmed and I need to chill and I don't know how to pursue the things that I'm interested in because they're not really the things that I'm expected to be interested in to quote-unquote succeed. But I'll let you guys answer.
4: <laughs> I-, I wonder if you wanted to answer first from the neuroscience standpoint about motivation.
3: Well, motivation is, a trans- is another dimension of transformation that's happening during the adolescent years, um, probably Uh, beyond what we have time to really get into in this panel, um, I I think one of the challenges, the key challenges during adolescence, and this has sort of been true across history for many generations, is um, the search for one's own identity and one's own passion. Um, And I think that that can be a very stressful and overwhelming experience for um, similar to what you were saying, if that isn't instantly something that is clear or understood. Um, in terms of how to sort of accelerate that search or prevent one from getting stuck, um, I would leave that sort of to the clinicians maybe to advise on. Um, but certainly uh, motivational systems and the way that the brain develops is uh, tuning them in new ways that I think can uh, create legitimate challenges for adolescents in certain moments. mm mm-hmm.
4: Um, I liked how you asked the question. You, you, you didn't really focus it on education. You were talking about motivation to apply themselves in lots of different contexts. I'm going to answer first in terms of education, though, because I did two global studies of boys' education in six different countries. Um, and what we found my, my research partner and I, between us, had 50 years of working with boys in educational contexts. And we were, we were totally unprepared for the clarity with which the boys responded to the question that we asked in an online survey, what works for you? What the boys said was very, very clearly, what works for us is a relationship with a teacher or a coach. We were driven to conclude that boys are relational learners, That it's for whom I will work. And if we extrapolate that finding, that research finding, to all areas of endeavor, what I would say, what I do say in my book, is that that it's the relationship that's going to enable a boy to dig in, to apply himself, to care, to invest. He'll do it for a person not for an abstract thing. In our in our interviews with the boys in the surveys, and we had 1,500 boys in two different surveys and, and follow-up focus groups, we, we didn't come across a boy that did not want to succeed. They care about the goal, but absent some kind of relational connection, it's hard for those boys to get traction. That's what we found.
1: Lisa, did you have any thoughts on that? Well, I think about the relationship piece all the time right and 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 one of the things that i have been surprised that i've ended up writing about almost more than anything else in my column in the times is risk taking in teenagers and and i think i've ended up writing about it cuz i feel like you know when the rubber hits the road right it doesn't matter what grade your kids getting in algebra if they're driving drunk right so we really care about risk and and you know the more i think about risk and i read about risk and i write about risk it all it all boils down like if you want a safe teenager they have a good working relationship with a grown up right and it may be their parent it may be someone at school it may be something and i feel like you know there's this i'm sure you could come up with some, some smart way to measure this i could not some way you could measure if you want to know a teenager's safety like teenagers who have relationships like this with grown ups that's an unsafe teenager and teenagers who have relationships like this with grown ups you've got a safe teenager and so i think about it all the time you know safety comes up so much as a pressing topic with teenagers I am now always walking up to it. Like, if we're going to talk with a teenager about safety, that is a moment that we could either take that relationship and create a Grand Canyon, right, by being like, these are the rules, don't you get caught, right, like that. Or that's a moment where we can take that relationship and get really close and say, I know you're going to parties, I know you're in positions that you do not expect to be in and that you're scared about and I'm scared about. What can we do in partnership to make sure you're coming home safely? I want to work with you here. And I think that... It's so interesting to me around the safety question how often our concerns unwittingly cause us to actually create the gulf that actually makes it worse, and those same concerns can be approached in a way that brings us close, creates safety... um, but it's funny it just feels like over and over like yeah but it all comes down to relationships right over and over like that's what like that's that's the basis
2: right i'm going to i'm going to take one more question but um i want to say i think intrinsic motivation is also really important that um when you ask about you know these boys are what why aren't they motivated um people tend to be motivated by things that interest them and so i would just make sure that we don't project our interests onto them and we let them figure out what they're interested in and people become incredibly motivated in those circumstances. Um, There's a question right
4: there. Um, Thank you so much for coming and sharing. This is fantastic. My question is, um, particularly in a separated household, how important is it that the parents be on the same page, quote unquote, how much time you know, trying to develop that same page, should we be devoting or should we just move on and get with the kids?
1: I have a strong opinion on this. I do. I'll go after you. I have a (laughs) Um, strong opinion, too. Having cared for a lot of divorced and separated families in my time, what I will say is it is more important that you be internally consistent in your own home, that you be um, writing in concert with your child's other parent. Um, Kids and teenagers, what they need is they need their parents to be utterly predictable, right? That's what allows kids to flourish, right? You don't even have to be all that sane, right? (laughs) I really mean this, if you are totally predictable. So I'll give you a for instance. So my own mother, I had no curfew as a teenager because I was kind of a boring teenager. I didn't do much, but I had basically no rules. If I left a spoon in the sink and didn't put it in the dishwasher, it was like World War III. Okay, so there was no rationale to this system, but it was a totally predictable one, right? So if I didn't want to run afoul of my mother, I'd just put stuff in the dishwasher and everything was fine. So, no, and truly, like, and you see this all the time, right? And so this is where, like, when we look at things like alcoholism and how it hamstrings kids and families where there's an alcoholic parent, it's the alcoholic's unpredictability that is so paralyzing to that kid. So kids all the time can operate across two different households as long as the households are predictable. If, oh, at dad's house, this is how it goes, and at mom's house, this is how it goes, right? And if you're both good enough parents, right, if you both have warmth and structure, the form that that takes can be completely unique household to household, but it has to be internally consistent within the household,
2: I, I agree with everything Lisa said and I would just say the last thing is that you asked about you know, do the parents need to be how, how do they interact with each other and I think the, the really important thing is that the kids see that um, the parents aren't arguing over the kids that the kids are not the cause of s- this kind of strife between the parents that the parents can be the grown-ups what they really need is they need you to be the adults the kids don't want to take care of you they don't want to be the cause of things between you. So you, as long as what Lisa said, you are internally consistent um, and that you're civil with each other, that you model generosity, kindness, respect, even if you
4: disagree. And, and I'll just add something, if I can. Or you,
2: wait, yeah, and then, and then we're going to
4: close. Okay. Um, you want your children to have a rich, lovely, deep, profound relationship with their mother and their father, it's important for the child to have that sense of really being cared for and having full psychological access to both parents. And so what I, what I, in my practice, I also see a lot of families that have bitter uh, relationships with each other uh, between the two of them. And what I emphasize is that they have an additional relationship, a co-parenting relationship, and that's simply a matter of business. Make that relationship work because it has to, for the sake of the kids.
2: Thank you all for coming today, and thanks to all the panelists for all of your wise insights.
0: Lisa Damore directs the Laurel School's Center for Research on Girls. Leah Somerville leads the Effective Neuroscience and Development Laboratory at Harvard. Michael Reichardt is the author of How to Raise a Boy, The Power of Connection to Build Good Men. Lori Gottlieb writes the Atlantic's weekly Dear Therapist advice column and contributes to the New York Times. Their conversation was held at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and Facebook at Aspen Ideas. Listen on our website, aspenideas.org, sign up for our newsletter. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenin and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Keelene Brettman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Jonathan Melgard, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.